At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to Mad Money at CBC One Market in San Francisco. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. At the end of the day, investing is all about searching for good stories. We're constantly on the hunt for powerful long-term themes that can transcend whatever might happen with tariffs or trade or inflation or interest rates or any of the other big-picture issues that control the market on a day-to-day basis, including today, where the Dow gained 55 points, the S&P advanced 0.28%, and the Nasdaq climbed 0.65%. But it's not enough just to find a transcendent theme. You also have to get the timing right. If you're too early, the story might be too small to move the needle. And if you're too late, you can find yourself in a situation where the easy money's already been made. That's why I love coming out here to San Francisco, the beautiful capital of Silicon Valley, because when you're fishing for new trends, it helps to cast your line into the biggest fishbowl. So what's the investable theme everybody's talking about right here, right now? Personalization. It's everywhere. The idea that companies need to know who their customers are and what they want before those customers know it themselves. Now, this may not sound new to many of you because, like say, Apple's been doing it for ages. They invent products you want before you even knew you wanted them, right? That's how Apple became the largest company on earth with a trillion dollar market capitalization. And hey, when you see the stock jump four bucks today on a very big, uh, very big volume, after JP Morgan issues a buy recommendation based on the strength of its new products and the ever burgeoning service stream I always talk about, it's easy to understand the power of personalization. Oh, and of course, Amazon, Amazon. I mean, it does the exact same thing. Hence why it's oh so close to a trillion dollar valuation of its own. But this year I'm seeing something else in my crystal ball. It's the trend of making a commodity, a commodity into something that can be personalized to your taste. In other words, technology has made it possible for mass market goods and services to be tailored to suit your tastes. For this kind of personalization, you have to consider what Salesforce has unleashed and so many others have adopted. Mark Benioff, the visionary co-CEO of Salesforce, threw an analyst meeting yesterday in conjunction with his Dreamforce conference. The Woodstock of tech, nearly all the analysts who follow the stock, ended up bumping their price targets. In response, Salesforce hit a new all-time high today. What's driving this move, really? Simple. Companies want the ability to do right by their customers to make things personal enough that they can pick up market share build trust, and do a better job of wooing a new client while retaining old ones. But they can't deliver that kind of personalization unless they actually know what their customers want. That's where Salesforce comes in. The trick is to ensure that each individual customer feels catered to, which is what this new Apple-Salesforce partnership I've been talking about all week will do for many in the service business. I keep thinking about Arnie Sorensen, the incredibly thoughtful CEO of Marriott, what he told me about how his partnership, this Apple-Salesforce deal, could put his company one step ahead in a very competitive industry. You speak to Siri about your check-in. Then Siri connects to the Salesforce-empowered platform at Marriott, which can call up and remember what your preferences are. Everything from the newspaper, maybe the kind of coffee you want to drink, anything that's in the digital file. 
That's what personalization is. It takes the commodity of a hotel room and turns it into a proprietary stay at your home away from home. Today, we visited the birthplace of Silicon Valley. Ah, oh, it was so exciting. It's the garage where Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard started it all when they invented the audio oscillator nearly 80 years ago, which ultimately became the foundation of Hewlett Packard. And even today, the latest incarnation of the Hewlett Packard's PC and printer business, HP Inc., just keeps innovating. This company is run by the incredible Dion Weisler, and it's become a fast moving player in a once very troubled industry. It's been reignited by, yes, innovation. For example, HP figured out how to personalize mundane and commoditized products like sugar and water with carbonation products. You know what I'm talking about. Coca-Cola, specifically the bottle of Coca-Cola. You ever want to know who made it possible for you to randomly be able to find a Jim Coke or a Coke by any other name at a random convenience store? HP, with its sophisticated enterprise printing operation that can digitize and personalize. It's been a home run, giving Coca-Cola a real competitive edge and admittedly tough business. We're taking market shares, everything, and a pie that's not growing like it used to. Hey, here's the best one I've heard so far. How about sneakers? There was a time not that long ago when Nike was perceived as having fallen behind the competition in its bread-and-butter sneaker business. CEO Mark Parker knew he had to shake things up. He knew that people wanted to use sneakers to express themselves, that they longed for shoes with a personal touch. But how do you personalize a mass market product? Simple. Parker used digitization to develop virtually personal sneakers. Just do it went from being a mantra to express yourself to being a personal motto. And I'm not speaking anecdotally here. This is empirical. On Nike's latest conference call this week, the word digital was used, get this, 59 times. I counted them. As Parker explained when he talked about the consumer direct offense, their initiative to sell directly to consumers, I quote, Nike Digital is leading the way for differentiated retail, up 36% for the quarter, end quote. How do you get that kind of growth? Quote, ultimately it is about becoming more personal at scale, end quote, Parker told us in a brilliant exposition, a real tutorial of how digital has made it possible for customers to wear their Nikes of choice. He continued, and I quote again, digital is allowing the company to get 2x innovation, how we connect through 2x direct, and how we serve through 2x speed, end quote, through mining data and using analytics to make it work. Now, many industries are trying hard to become less commoditized. It doesn't always work or not that impactful. Uh, KB Homes this week talked about how new houses can come with a Google Home system that allows for some personalization. I think it gives them a bit of an edge, but it's not necessarily a needle mover. CarMax reported what looked like a strong quarter, but the largely used car dealers had to adopt an omni-channel strategy to give consumers, particularly young consumers, a choice in how they buy their vehicles. That's not what this largely brick-and-mortar chain had in mind when it helped start the national car dealer concept. but. Millennials still buy cars, and while some will insist on test driving like we did, or at least sitting in a car, others simply don't want the hassle. The problem is that digitizing a non-digital operation can be expensive. Go ask all the retailers that have spent years and fortunes desperately trying to fend off Amazon. Sometimes it works, and other times it doesn't, and you end up like Bed Bath & Beyond, which saw its stock plummet another 21% today on a really crummy quarter, and I'd still say... Too much spending on the stock, buying it back, not enough on technology. I think all of this spending on digital personalization has really crimped CarMax's profitability in what has become a very commoditized, often hard sell industry. And yeah, I got to tell you, I don't know whether I want to buy it. Oh, by the way, speaking of cars and personalizing, the SEC just this evening accused Elon Musk 
of Tesla tonight of misleading investors when he tweeted that he had funding lined up to take his company private. That's not the kind of personalization you want to have. Still, there's a clear takeaway here of what I keep hearing in Silicon Valley, and that is get digital and get personal fast. Here's the bottom line. These digital personalizations, well, and you know what? They're no longer merely an option. They're a necessity. And the companies that give other businesses the tools that make personalization possible, companies like Salesforce, companies like HP, are the real winners and the ones worth investing in because they have figured it out in lucrative ways that make their stocks worth owning right here, right now. Let's take calls. Alex in New Jersey. Alex. Hey, Jim. Thanks for being on the air after all these years. Oh, man, I just keep going. Go, go Eagles. What's up? Hey, hey, I want to ask you about a stock uh, several analysts are claiming to be uh, undervalued with large upside potential. But it's been falling since earnings, and its next report isn't until November. Additionally, several market makers have been holding this in their portfolios for 2018. and wonder if they're still dumping shares. Supply Materials a broken stock? Uh, Applied Materials is a fabulous company, but I do not want to own the stock right now because it turns out that things are a little more cyclical than we thought when it comes to the, uh, let's just say, when it comes to the notion of Internet of Things, when it comes to the notion of data center. So there's a slowdown. I think it's just a hiccup, but it's a hiccup that you can't digest, so I don't want you to own the stock right now. Let's go to Richard in Illinois. Richard. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Good. I'm a 22-year-old investor reading your book right now, Get Rich Carefully, big fan. All right. Um, I got about $50,000 portfolio. 30% of that comprises of noodles and company. Uh, NDLS is the ticker. Millennials love it. I always see kids eating there, and it seems like it's a good Richard, that, that's a painful statistic that you have that much in noodles. I like the comeback in noodles, too. But I got to be honest, the stock's up 133%. You had that much of it in it. I need you to take off your capital, at least some of your invested capital, and then move on. That is way too dicey. I can't have that on my watch, even though I do like the company's comeback. Let's go to Pete in Ohio. Pete. What's going on, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. Well, I'm out here trying to stay warm and taking your call. What's going on with you, Pete? All right, U.S. concrete, is it a buy at under $50 per share? I, feel, I, have, said, uh, US- I have said over and over again, until we get an infrastructure bill in through Congress, you cannot own this stock. It will not work. Okay, it's the year of personalization, people. It's transcendent. It's a necessity. It's a winner strategy. Oh, man, tonight I'm unboxing Box to see if the company's decline could present a buying opportunity. Then from 12 to 18 foot garage, all the way to sec to a tech juggernaut, I'm heading to the birthplace of Silicon Valley, the 8th peak garage, to show you where it all began. And can't make a trip out west without hearing from Cisco, a tech company that's managed to transform itself into a top-notch software play. How'd they do that? I've got the CEO. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. 
See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokered Services, member NYSE SIPC. In the office or on the go, this digital disruptor is ushering in a new way to work. Vox is where content meets collaboration. But does it check all the boxes for your portfolio? What do you do if you want to buy a cloud stock, but you don't want to chase something that's already red hot? Well, you look for the cloud plays that have gotten hammered and you kick the tires. Something that's easy to do while we're out here for Dreamforce. Consider the case of Box, the cloud-based enterprise storage and mobile collaboration platform. After taking off earlier this year, Box's stock sold off hard over the summer. Why? A month ago, the company reported a solid quarter, but there was some softness in certain regions, and the guidance was seen as disappointing. Plus, management backed away from their previous forecast of a billion dollars in revenue by the end of 2021. The stock lost 10% of its value in one day, and it's now come down more than 20% from its June highs. So could this pullback be a buying opportunity, or is it a sign that we need to get more cautious? Last night, we got a chance to catch up with Aaron Levy. He's the co-founder and CEO of Box. Take a look. Mr. Levy, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, good to see you. Thanks so much. Okay, Aaron, you've always been a straight shooter with us. Yeah. You heard that narrative I just traced out. Yeah. That's kind of the Wall Street gibberish line. <laughs> I've looked at you when the stock was at 12 is when we first started talking. Yeah. So a double's not so bad. But yeah. are, there, are there nuances about that walk back and yeah. about that guidance cut that maybe people are missing? Yeah, so the, the first thing to clarify is we've always said that we will be doing a billion dollars in revenue in FY22. And previously we had, um, uh, we had pinpointed the quarter in which we would be doing the revenue run rate of a billion. And that was the thing that we did. We wanted to reverse the, some of the pinpointing just because there's you know moving pieces on when we okay. actually hit 250 okay. million in revenue in a quarter. But we are still committed to a billion in revenue right, in so FY22. No change in what many Correct. people thought was a real forecast cut. Yeah. No. Okay. Right. So what we're seeing right now in the business is um, a re- uh, reacceleration of a lot of the big deal performance, mm-hmm. the solution selling that we're focused on, being able to sell multiple add-on products to customers. Um, just in this past quarter, we did uh, about 25% increase in $100,000 and $500,000 deals year over year. So we're seeing some really strong performance as we move up market and go and serve larger and larger enterprises, which is obviously the, the sole focus of the company. But uh, your co-founder in a recent talk said there are headwinds and then talked about the way that deals are pricing, but not necessarily that there's weakness in pricing, but how they're basically cut. Uh, maybe headwinds, had you not used that, he not <laughs> used that word, yeah. wouldn't have hurt the stock. I think, uh, you know, sometimes there's always the vocabulary that we have to be very, right. very careful of with, with Wall Street. But in general, we're seeing really strong performance in the business right now. We did uh, announce at the very beginning of this year that this would be a year where we are evolving our go-to-market motion. We want to be able to go from selling a single product to customers to really the full platform and multiple products to customers as a broader solution. Um, That has meant that we have retooled some of our go-to-market motion, some of our sales motions, and we wanted to make sure that investors understood that that would take some time to play out in the business uh, to drive a re-accelerated growth rate. But we've seen a lot of the success that we were expecting. You always said to us, it's land. Yeah. And you landed and then expand. And I don't think you've ever said it expands in a straight line, which is why I guess I'm more partial to the idea of buying somebody, some a company with a very long-term vision. I don't think anything long-term about the need to store and access the storage and security has changed one bit. Not at all. In fact, it's only increasing. So uh, today we have, we uh, guided that we'll do a little over 600 million in revenue this year. We're going after a 40 to $50 billion market. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in front of us. And all of that 
you know, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars in spend is going into legacy solutions that have to eventually migrate and transition to the cloud. And we are building the leading platform to make sure we can capture that as it transitions to the cloud. So the, the upside is, is only increasing from here, but we have been uh, making sure that we can improve our go-to-market motion to sell the full breadth of the platform and the full set of capabilities that our customers need. But why have you chosen to be so outspoken on other issues involving some of the things that I talked about yeah. with Mark Banioff yesterday? I mean, you're very, you care for a tremendous amount about security. Uh, Security, in my mind, when I read through yours, is about the ethics of being secure for yeah. the customer as yeah. well as not having hackers come in. Yeah, yeah. I think in in, uh, in the digital age, uh, security takes on a whole bunch of different uh, uh, fronts and, and ideas. One is the, the full security and protection of data. The other is your control and the privacy of that information. Right. Do you actually know what information you have on the internet? Do you have full control of how it gets used? And our promise and commitment to our customers is that we want to make sure you have 100% control of your data. It is your data. Right. You get to decide how it gets used, how it gets shared, and when you share it. Right. Um, we have a, a service that lets customers even own and control their own encryption keys for the data that is leveraged uh, in our platform. Mm -hmm. So our job is to make sure that when we're working with in incredibly large enterprises or governments, companies like General Electric or Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble or Pfizer, that we give them all the protection they need to be able to securely manage and store their data while right. also ensuring that it stays private uh, and that it, it complies with all of the different uh, uh, requirements that they have from a regulatory standpoint. But we're also speaking about the notion of trust. Yeah. Now Facebook, I think it's okay, I've been out here, everyone tells me off the record we've, they violated our trust and then periodically when you reach it they finally say on the record violated trust. Right. And violation of trust is what brings in the government. Government yeah. regulation, we're all in favor of reasonable regulation, yeah. but has Facebook made it bad for everybody? Um, you know, I think that uh, I, I think we're in a, uh, an incredibly uh, precarious time because you have yep. a lot of regulations and laws that were built for the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And now in the 21st century, with uh, the amount of digital transformation that's happening in every industry, whether it's, uh, whether it's how we uh, consume healthcare, whether it's how we vote, whether it's our transportation, we need a new set of laws that anticipate how much more dynamic this environment is that, that we live in today. And there aren't a lot of regulations that apply to how should we get our news? Uh, how, how should we be uh, leveraging the information that we put into consumer social media platforms? And so I actually think it's incredibly important that we have these conversations. I think that there's some regulation that will be really helpful right. for Facebook, for Twitter, and for the rest of the tech industry. So we're not shying away from regulation. Uh, most of our customers that we work with are actually regulated. So they actually are looking to us to say, can Box, can Salesforce, can other cloud companies take a leadership position to ensure that the sanctity of their data and that the platforms that they're right. leveraging remain safe and secure. And that's something that we want to lean into and actually help our customers with. Well, look, I think it'd be great for customers. You've got a lot of terrific partnerships. I think that there's a speed bump here that because your stock actually went up to 28, maybe it shouldn't have done that, but I think it'll revisit it. Not that long. That's probably your fault, not, not ours. All right, <laughs> I'll take that burden. That's Aaron Levy. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Box, a stock that we have been, a company and a stock that we've been behind since it came public. Man, money's back here for the break. Thank you. Thank you. From a garage, a revolution was born. Bill and Dave started in a garage and they were engineers and they made the first audio oscillator and since that time, innovation has been really stitched into the fabric of the organization. A symbol of technological prowess, HP has engineered inspiration and reinvented the way we connect. Can this pioneer of tech continue to break new ground?
If you'd asked me about the future of the personal computer business a few years ago, I never would have guessed that it was going to make a dramatic comeback. Yet that's exactly what happened. And this renaissance has turned HP Inc., the PC and printer maker created when the old Hewlett Packard broke itself up, into a stunning outperformer. Thanks to some terrific results, the stock has been on a gigantic tear. It's up 22% for 2018, not to mention up nearly 80% since we started recommending it a little over two years ago. On top of that, HP Inc. has a 3D printing business that's always seemed like a kind of a lottery ticket. But lately, the potential of this division has become a lot more obvious and exciting, with the company planning to release a new model that could revolutionize the industry in a couple of years. So could the stock have even more upside? We checked in with Dion Weisler. He's the president and CEO of HP, who has never let us down, from the original HP garage in Palo Alto, where it all began. Take a look. Dion, we're at the birthplace of Silicon Valley. Tell me about it. It's really quite incredible uh, to be in this hallowed place. We're in the original HP garage where it all started, where Bill and Dave set up their first workshop and first manufacturing plant back in 1939. And it is something that as a company we're incredibly proud of. It forms the roots and the foundations of our company and everything we stand for. But it's also the epicenter of innovation. It's where Bill and Dave created their first product, um, the audio oscillator for the Disney movie, uh, Fantasia. And they created 12 of them here and they baked the enamel on the products in the oven inside. And it's just an incredible symbol of all that we've become over the past 80 years. This is the garage concept of innovation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if innovation were a religion, this would be Jerusalem, right here. Okay, to cradle for all three religions, major religions. Now, talk to me about the DNA that was imprinted on, on Hewlett Packard from these gentlemen. Yeah, well, it's well sort of publicized, the HP way, and these guys were well ahead of their time. Uh, they obviously talked about innovation. Innovation was core DNA to the company. But there are other things that we know as HP is inside that perhaps the rest of the world doesn't know. We call it sustainability impact. Um, it's our impact on the planet, the impact on people, and the impact on communities. And it really started here 80 years ago before anyone ever talked about diversity and inclusion. It didn't even have a brand where consciously and and responsibly manufacturing products began uh, here, and it's threaded right through the course of 80 years. All right, uh, let's catch up to the current part of the revolution. Some of the things that you guys are doing, to me, are a continuation of the revolution I see around me. Yeah, listen, we couldn't be prouder of where the company is three years after we, uh, we did the separation. Uh, innovation is just alive and well everywhere I look inside the company. We've uh, got engineers um, innovating like never before, creating amazing products. We're consistently delivering on the things that we said we would do. That's important to gain trust. We're a trusted brand. When something's got a HP logo on it, if we were at a party, we would be the designated driver. And people believe in us, and so we have to innovate with purpose, and it's showing up in our results, last quarter, 12% growth, $14.6 billion. Um, we added $1.5 billion in the quarter, year over year. EPS was, was strong, it was up 21%. Uh, free cash flow, um, 
we said it'll be 3.7 in excess of 3.7 for the year. We guided up there. So innovating with purpose is showing up in our results and it just is a flywheel um, that's driving the organization and doing it with purpose. Well, I think it's important to point out that you get more than your share of bright young people because of the ethos of the company. Younger people come out of school. They want to work for a company that thinks about plastic. They want to work for a company that is uh, thinking about diversity. And we need people to understand that your company is one that's top of mind. Yeah. Listen, it's not just our employees, and we love attracting the best and brightest to to join um, the revolution that we're, we're really driving here. But sustainable impact on many dimensions is just who we are and it started here. So whether it's how we think about the planet, um, we use 9,000 tonnes of recycled plastics that go back into our printer cartridges, whether they be toner or ink cartridges, where a lot of that, 160 tonnes of it is ocean bound, so we're cleaning up the ocean there. We pledged that uh, by 2020 we'd have 40% of um, all energy reusable and renewable energy. We're already at 50%, well ahead of schedule, and we've made a commitment to be 100%. So there's many things that we do inside the company that we're not doing because it's cool or trendy. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do and it's a business imperative. All right, now I remember when the split occurred and there were two pieces. One was a growth piece and one was just a cash cow that you knew some people even felt might be finite or at least a wasting asset. You always generate a lot of cash, so people said, you know what, I'll own it for the dividend. Your part of the company is growing faster uh, than the other part. They're doing fine, but faster. Uh, and also generating a lot more cash flow and buying back a lot more stock than anyone thought a ha- uh, could happen by this point. How much of it is new products that move the needle, particularly versus, say, the cell phone uh, which or the tablet, both of which were revolutionary and then became just evolutionary. Yeah, look, I think if we break it down, we think about it in the context of our strategy that has three pillars. Our core pillar, it's the vast majority of our revenue and operating profit today. In both printing and PCs, I'll come back to that. In the future, we see a world of Industry 4.0, a world where manufacturing is democratised, which is not only incredible in terms of the innovation that it can drive, but it's great for the planet. There's less inventory, you're putting less things on boats, you're shipping ones and zeros around, and you're printing customised right to where the the partner is. And to bridge those two, we have a growth part of the strategy. Areas that we're investing, the acquisition of Samsung, recently the acquisition of Apogee to get into the A3 copier market, the graphics business that we spoke about last time, personalising messages, and then everything is transforming to a service, so the work we're doing around PCs as a service. As it relates to PCs, that market, I always said, is a, is a great market. It's, did, it's, did it's enormous. Not, people did not understand yeah. because people just said, okay, well, it's going to decline by 1% to 2%. What is he talking about? The, the market did stabilize, but more important, your portion, your share, uh, directly impacted by the smarts of the company. Yeah, so what I believed um, always was that people will choose a device based on the complexity of task. If they've got a low complexity task to do, they might pick up a smartphone. They can 
look at the stock price, they can write an email. So you can produce and consume on that device, but you're not going to make Shrek 3 or whatever they're up to on a smartphone. You're going to pick up a workstation. And there's a number of devices in between, and tablets and PCs and two-in-ones and detachables and convertibles, and depending on what you're looking to do, you're going to select the right task for you. And so once sort of the innovation started to slow down in smartphones and tablets, people were gravitating back to these other devices that allowed them to do different things that were now ageing four, five, six years, and we were giving them a reason with incredible innovation to upgrade. I think that we, you know, I have one. I've got the latest and greatest, which is incredibly light. I have a bad back. I did it that way. It turned out that it had all the features that I could ever want. There are a couple things that stand out. Uh, the screen that, that, that can fold up and down. Uh, but most importantly, uh, something that I never thought I'd want, but now I don't know how to live without. Touch. You knew that touch was going to be a breakout concept. How did you get that in your head? Well, we have five senses. And so it seems kind of weird to cut sensors off. And if you can introduce another sense, the sense of touch, it's a very natural thing to do. It's a little awkward to begin doing it, but once you start doing it, you can't go back. You know, it's, it's, it's just like one of those things that, oh, of course, it should have been there. You know, I think we innovate based on customer insight. And so we spend a lot of time with customers a lot of time with partners trying to understand how the world is changing, how their life is changing, how they're living one life today. They don't live a consumer life and a commercial life. So design is important, security is important, everything as a service is important to this next generation. And as it turns out, touch is really important as well because it allows you to have a very personal relationship with a device that you and, spend all day with. And certainly in keeping with the two gentlemen that invented everything here. Yeah, absolutely. They, they did exactly that and I thought that was why it was so cool to to come and spend a little bit of time in the garage. It's, uh, it's a, the birthplace of Silicon Valley. Well, uh, Dion Westworth, thank you so much. Dion is the president and the CEO of HP. It's been such a great performer. Maybe now you know why. says you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Out here in Silicon Valley, old dogs learn new tricks all the time. They just need the right trainer. That's why I've been such a huge backer of Cisco. Under the leadership of CEO Chuck Robbins, this company has transformed itself from an old school networking, mostly hardware maker, into a much more diversified business with plenty of lucrative software, especially for security, the cloud, and the internet of things. After laying the groundwork for years, these new tricks are clearly paying off for Cisco. It blew away the numbers when it reported a magnificent beat and raise quarter last month. And the stock's now up more than 26% year to date. That's an incredible run for a $221 billion company. But don't take it from me. Let's hear from the man himself. Let's hear from Chuck Robbins. He's the turnaround artist, chairman, and CEO of Cisco Systems. To find out what lies ahead for his new and improved company, Chuck, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Good, Good to, to be here. You. Thank you. Chuck, you have reinvented a gigantic company faster than I've ever seen. You are now the largest security company. You're becoming a gigantic software company. How did you change the stripes from when we used to just ask you, how switches, how's routers? <laughs> well, you know, Jim, I think, uh, first of all, thanks for having us on today. We love to be able to talk about our story. We're very proud of what we've done, and I'm proud of the team. Uh, you know, we set out a few years ago, and there were, there were a lot of great things that were already put in place. I mean, Cisco has had an incredible culture for a very long time. We've had a great brand. And the good news is the last three years, we've had a great economic tailwind. Now, all that being said, I, our teams, I think, really put together the right portfolio in true 
you know, alignment with what's happening in the marketplace, and we're beginning to see our customers adopt that. So uh, I'm really proud of what they've done. At the same time, you have what uh, people out here call, it is, but most people won't understand, a refresh. Can you tell people what a refresh is <laughs> for a giant product that you have that is going to give you multiple years of good growth? Well, we have, uh, when, when technology has been used for five or six years, then customers tend to refresh it. So we call it a refresh cycle. And, uh, but what we really understood and what our David Geckler, my head of uh, networking engineering, understood is that you know, it's not financial offers that drive refresh, it's true innovation that lead our customers to want to refresh. And everything that's happening relative to the transition to the cloud is, is leading our customers to think about how they need to re-architect their infrastructure to support that. And so we've been fortunate with the Catalyst 9000 and the adoption that we've seen there. And uh, as we've been talking about, we have a whole series of new products across the entire enterprise portfolio that fit within that architecture that are forthcoming. So we're, uh, we're pretty excited about the pipeline. And you're doing it by, uh, with subscription, which I think people have to understand that if you back out the way subscription is done, you are now starting to get high single digit growth for a company that some people felt was going to be destined to do two to 3% growth for ages. Yeah, well, when we launched the Catalyst 9000, there was, uh, there was skepticism as to whether we could launch a software subscription on right. top of a network right. switch. And, and not only did we do that, but our customers were quite okay with it as the, the Catalyst 9000, turns out it was, it's been the fastest ramping product in the history of the company. So um, it is, uh, it's a great combination of high performance hardware but with really high value software with a lot of innovation in it that our customers are clearly seeing the, uh, the, the value of. All right, I read a recent presentation uh, by one of your officials and he's talking about how Cisco is now the largest enterprise security business in the world. Now that was something I didn't think of you as of just even a few years ago. Well Jim, if you think about what our customers are facing now in the advent of the cloud, real simply, for the past decade they've built networks and they built security architectures based on a premise that traffic begins at the edge, perhaps at the branch, and terminates in their data center, right. right? And today, what's really happening is, all the traffic still begins at the edge, but it's terminating in 100 different places. And this is the multi-cloud story that we've been talking about. Okay. So it's terminating in Microsoft, it's terminating in Amazon, Google, IBM, it's terminating in all the SaaS providers like Salesforce here today. And what that means is there's not a central e ingress, egress point to actually apply security anymore. Okay. So the, the network firewall has historically been the control point for security. Right. In the right. new world, it's going to be identity and the cloud. And so if you think about our duo acquisition, that's where identity comes in. Right. You think about some of the work that we've been doing uh, in some of the acquisitions we made like OpenDNS and CloudLock. Right. And then there's some innovation that we're working on as well that really are going to demonstrate that this architecture we've been building for the first for the last few years will really be the architecture that people will understand two to three years from now as they transition more fully to multi-cloud. All right, again, two to three years, got to keep thinking of that, people, because what matters is you want, don't want short-term numbers and then pop and gone. You mentioned the top global macro tailwinds. I know that we had great tax reform in this country. It spurred, yeah. spurred a lot of growth. Uh, but we also have a situation where we're having what Jamie Dimon told me this week are trade skirmishes, the China's trade skirmish. You've been beneficiary of the tax reform, but you've done right. all the right things, uh, but you also could get hurt by a world that is putting up barriers. Well, I think, you know, when we look at the uh, tariffs today, 
I think that uh, lots of companies have been impacted, particularly by the 200 billion that were just recently Im implemented, which ultimately is going to impact the consumer pricing and our customers' pricing. Uh, but we we can at least deal with that. We know how to deal okay. with it, and you know we've uh, we've had conversations with the administration. We've been optimizing supply chain, and we've applied some price increases where we had to. I think my bigger concern is what do these trade skirmishes right. or the uh, you know the uncertainty that's going on? At right. what point does that flow through to the the global macro environment? And that's the bigger fear for us, and that's what we don't want to see. All right. Well. None of us want to see that. That could hurt the stock market. One last thing, we're talking to a lot of companies out here doing great things that are about the unfortunate people who have less. You quietly have done stuff. I want to make it not quiet. Tell, tell people what you've done. Well, we've done, we've done several things. I think that uh, in particular, when you look in San Jose, just to the south, uh, Santa Clara County is the third highest county as, it, uh, as you measure chronic homelessness in the United States. And uh, it just doesn't feel like that should be occurring anywhere, much less in a wealthy county right. where we've seen so much prosperity. So earlier this year, Cisco uh, committed $50 million to try to eradicate homelessness. And uh, we're working with Destination Home there. Uh, Mark Benioff's doing a lot of work up here in San Francisco. So we're actually trying to bring together and, and drive some regional alignment around these efforts. And we're doing a lot of other things as well. But in, in this part of the world, uh, affordable housing, homelessness, hunger, I mean, these are all issues that companies in Silicon Valley have to care about. And uh, we're just trying to do our part. Thank you for talking about it. Thank you for leading by example. That's Chuck Robbins, chairman and CEO of Cisco, a very inexpensive stock that I think is about to go having another leg up. Mad Money's back at the break. It is time, and it's time for a very special San Francisco West Coast edition, the best coast edition of the lightning round. Okay, there's bad money. That's right, take your calls, rapid fire. You say the name of the stock, I tell you, bye bye bye, something, but I do not have the calls, I'm going to play the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? It's time for the lightning round, Okay, there's bad money. Let's go to Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer. Oh, hey, Dave, how you been, partner? I'm doing well. From the home of Soldier Field and the Chicago Bears, thank you for Trey Burton and for taking my call. Uh, you're welcome, on Trey. I miss him in good defense this year. I've got, Hor Hor I've got Howard, my fantasy. Let's go to work. Jim, with your recent buzz cut haircuts, I see you in a red convertible Ferrari. R-A-C-E. Uh, I like a connected Lamborghini, according to my friend Mark Benioff. Ha! I like your stock, Dave. Once again, you have always delivered with the good ones. Race is very strong. Let's go to Joe in my home state, New Jersey. Joe! Hello, Kramer. Thank you for giving me a lot of great stock advice. You've been well, right on. Sure trying. What's going on? Thank you. Uh, after Square rolled out their new payroll app, should I still hold on to paychecks? I have to tell you, I think that that was brilliant move by uh, Jack by Jack and Sarah, uh, and it was worrisome. But you know what? I think Paychex franchise is intact, and it's got a good yield. I say hold on. Let's go to Brian and Florida. Brian. Hey Jim, thanks for taking my call. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just wondering what you think about First American ticker symbol FAS. Uh, if I'm going to own an insure, okay. If I'm going to own insure, I am temp I am always going to. 
gravitate to Chubb. I think Chubb is better. I need to go to Will and Marilyn. Will. Mr. Kramer, thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, my dad and I love your show. Um, you. The uh, the stock that I'm calling about is a Veristem. The ticker is VSTM. Yes. They just uh, secured uh, FDA approval for their first. Uh, I know this company is a cancer stem cell uh, spec. Uh, I am a huge believer in stem cell and a huge believer in anything that can stop cancer. It is spec stock. You can own a little, not more than that. Let's go to Michael in Indiana. Michael. Hey, Booyah, Jim. Great to be back on the show here at Indiana University. Oh, I love that show. Mark Cuban, what's going on? He's, uh, he's living the dream is what he's doing. I'm, uh, yes, I'm wondering is. about your, your thoughts on the Halliburton stock. No, I'm going to have to ask you to stay away from it. The fact that it hasn't moved up much at all during this big run in oil tells me that if oil comes back down, you're really going to be in trouble. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I gotta tell you, I'm kind of stunned that President Trump could take on Canada going totally ad hominem and totally hostile to our nation's largest trading partner, and yet the stock market barely noticed. We actually went higher today. During last night's press conference, I found myself thinking, this is no longer the art of the deal. It's the art of destruction. I mean, how much do these negotiators hate each other? Look, we know that our ongoing trade disputes around the world have yet to really have an impact on earnings for more than a handful of industries. Everyone's been worried about China, but compared to Canada, China's a nothing burger. Our neighbor to the north is the largest trading partner for 36 out of 50 states. Hey, that's a lot of electoral votes, isn't it? And of course, Canada's been our best friend through two world wars and a host of other conflicts. It's unnerving and even shocking to me how much President Trump seems to dislike Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, or even Christian Freeland the Minister of Foreign Affairs, whom we have weekly mentioned in a very critical way. To those of us who know Christian from her years in journalism, including her time as the U.S. manager of the Financial Times, it's kind of criticism. She's kind of pretty out there. If you can get along with Kim Jong-un, surely you can get along with Justin and Christian, no? Hey, but how did the stock market react to the President of the United States dissing our most favored trading partner? It was like it didn't matter. It's like it didn't happen. It didn't even register. Today's positive stock action calls into question the whole narrative that these trade disputes are going to derail the entire economy. I'd like to believe that. However, I cannot stress enough just how much Canada matters to commerce in this country and to profits. And that, by the way, was true even before NAFTA. I'm not saying that we can't live without Canada. We're a great country. I am saying that we're try that trying to unravel and unwind our economy from trade with Canada would be like a logistical nightmare. You, you think getting into a trade war with China's bad? We're not joined at the hip with China. Many businesses are furiously moving their manufacturing to other countries from China to avoid the tariffs. But when it comes to trade, Canada is practically an extension of the U.S. economy. There are very few barriers to commerce. Anyone who lives near the border knows this. Our auto industry is the prime pain point in the system. American automakers have always operated as though Canada and the United States are interchangeable. No wonder the stocks of Ford and GM hit 52-week lows today. Yet it doesn't seem to matter very much to the rest of the market, especially tech, at least not in this session. Now, you could say, wait a second, Trump also attacked China directly, saying that their undeclared trade war on American business is far worse than people realize, and it even includes meddling in the upcoming election. You have to believe that was a setback for whatever trade talks, if any, that we may be having with the Chinese. 
This is not a tariff tiff. It is not merely a trade skirmish, as Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, told us Monday. To me, it sounded like a decision to put our largest trading partners on notice that they're going to be supplanted. The impact? Nothing. Frankly, I'm flummoxed. Today, it sure seemed as though the issues that have plagued us for most of the year, trade and then don't forget rate hikes like the one we got yesterday, simply aren't what matter. For the moment, the only things that this market cares about are earnings, sales, growth, and employment. So does the strength of our economy trump everything? And yes, that horrible pun was very much attended. I would have used the rim shot button if I were back in Englewood Cliffs. Today's action says that it doesn't matter. This kind of market was inconceivable six months ago. Now it's our shockingly bullish reality. I'm frantically trying to figure out what it all means. Have we had it wrong any, all along where we were too worried about tariffs and trade? Or is it possible that today was simply an aberration? Maybe not enough investors took the president's press conference seriously. On the other hand, maybe the economy is just so darn strong that even a Canadian trade meltdown is enough to fade into a, let's just say, into a tizzy at least, or maybe a couple of down days. It's an open question, but today's action suggests that we actually might end up liking the answer. Stick with Craig. Look, I've always respected the bull case for Tesla, not that I understand it, but it uniquely involved the man in charge. So let's watch. If the man in charge leaves, you don't want to own the stock of Tesla. I mean, you'd be crazy to. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money in San Francisco. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account U.S. equity and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee and some account types and securities excluded. See Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.